Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships, so we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We've been walking through the book of Acts. We're doing a series called Sent. We're looking at this early, early Christian church. Right after Jesus came, he gave his life, rose from the grave. He spent some time kind of, uh, you know, sharing with everybody, hey, what I said is true. He ascended into heaven. And then we found out in Acts chapter 2 that he sends his Holy Spirit. It dwells among his believers, in his believers, and they begin to change the world forever. And what's interesting is over the last few weeks, we've been learning about the early stages of this brand new thing that God was doing, this new church, this, this new movement of believers. And we saw last week where they had some major issues. Uh, so if you think today's a major issue, it's not. Uh, this is what the church does. We just kind of roll with, with what we're dealt. And uh, today, we're going to be looking at a different story. You, you thought they had problems last week. Wait until you see what happens this week. So turn over to Acts chapter 7. Uh, grab your Bibles and uh, head over to Acts chapter 7 with us this morning. If you have your device, open that up. Also, you can use the app. The app has the, the Bible in there for you. It's already turned to all those passages that we're going to be using this morning, as well as message notes if you want to take notes and uh, try to get as much out of this as you can. Uh, today, uh, before I jump into the story, I want to give you a confession. Uh, when, when a pastor gets ready to make a confession, it's kind of scary, isn't it? You're like, oh, great, here we go again, right? Uh, I want to tell you, um, I'm a godly man uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray without ceasing, study the Word of God, uh, try to walk closely to God, prioritize my family above most things, always love people, I don't mistreat people. And if you think that's a confession, you know I'm lying, right? So here's my confession. None of that is true. Like, none of that's true. I want it to be true. Like, I, I want to exude that. I want, I want people to think that of me. I really desire that, but it's not true. And what I've learned and what I've found out in my life is that uh, even as hard as I try to make those things real, the truth is that I'm broken, that I'm messed up, that I'm jacked up, I'm flawed, I'm sinful, and I struggle every day to be more and more like Christ. It's a constant work in progress. And I've learned that, bottom line, I'm nothing without Jesus. I'm nothing without Christ. He's, he's the one that has saved me. He sustains me. He gives me wisdom and knowledge, and he, he gives me my daily bread. He allows me to take the next breath, and if it wasn't for Jesus, I, I would have nothing, and I would be nothing. Today, we're looking at a story about a guy by the name of Stephen, who I believe understood this with everything within him. He lived his life that way, knowing that if it wasn't for Jesus, he would be nothing. He would have nothing. And in this passage in Acts chapter 7, we're going to find out. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ruin the story for you if you haven't read it. He dies. All right? He's martyred. He becomes the very first 
Christian martyr in the faith. He's held up as the first one to give his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it's interesting because we were introduced to him last week. If you were here last week, you know we talked about this big issue, this, this discrimination that was going on within the church. And, and the Greek-speaking um, widows were not being fed. Like they were being left out of the food distribution. And, and the apostles got together and said, look, we can't take our focus off what God has called us to do. We can't be in the food business. we got to be in the gospel business. And so let's choose some men. And they chose seven men to take care of the issue. And the first one that they listed was in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. It was a guy by the name of Stephen, the very guy that we're talking about here today. And the way he was described, if you remember from last week, is that he was a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want somebody to describe you, I don't know if you can come up with a better description than that. If somebody said that of you, that you are a person of faith and that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, would you need anything else? I mean, talk about a great compliment. And because of that, though, he's a bold believer. He, he's very intelligent. He speaks all kinds of wisdom because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He articulates very well. He is a well-studied uh, in the Old Testament. And he begins to teach in the temple. And the Pharisees come against him and they start to, to try to argue with him. But he is filled with the Holy Spirit to such a degree that they can't even argue with him. Like he, he's so articulate and so studied, they can't even find anything wrong with this guy. And so they do what any other political figure does, right? They go get false witnesses and they charge him falsely. They have people come forward and, and get this, they actually say that he is blaspheming. And they bring him in front of the council and they put him on trial. They arrest this, this man, this righteous man who is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Uh, see, many times we think that as, as we follow Christ, that if we do what God wants us to do, that nothing can touch us. Nothing bad is going to happen to us. And yet this guy is arrested and he's put on trial in front of the council. The same council that has been arresting Peter and John and putting them on trial. The same council that, that arrested Jesus and put him on trial and sentenced him to die by crucifixion. It's the same council. And here we have Stephen in chapter 7, standing in front of this council, and it starts off this way. Um, I want to hear you this morning. Are you there? Are you ready to go? Okay, good, good. All right, I was wondering there for a minute. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? Now, if we were in court today, uh, they would say, how do you plead, right? Like, uh, do, do you plead guilty? Do you plead innocent? How, how do you plead? That's really the question that they're asking here. Now, what I love about this is Stephen, he, he's not uh, going with a high-powered attorney. He didn't go, you know, he didn't do anything like that. He's representing himself, and, and he's asked the question, uh, how do you plead? And he could have said, I'm guilty. He could have said, well, I'm innocent. He could have said, um, here's why. But he, see, this is not Stephen's approach. Again, being a man of faith and being filled with the Holy Spirit, he sees an opportunity here. He's not going to just answer it and say, I'm guilty or I'm innocent. He sees this as an open door to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? For the next 52 verses, this man preaches. 
He lays out the Bible, the entire story of God and Jesus. Now, what I love about this is he not only believed what he believed, but he could tell you why he believed it. And the reason I bring that up is for many of us as Christians, we can tell people around us what we believe, but many of us can't tell anyone why we believe. And it's, inc- it's incredibly important that you learn why you believe what you believe. You've got to be able to back this up with truth and be able to explain to people why you believe what you believe. 1 Peter 3.15 says that if anyone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That's what it says. How many of us, if we were asked today why you believe what you believe, could explain it? Why do you have so much hope? Why are you joyful even in these times when things are kind of tough? You've lost your job. You don't know what tomorrow. How are you so joyful right now? Could you explain that? Not just what, but how. See, Stephen can. Why? Because he begins to articulate the Old Testament. We're going to see that here in just a minute. And again, going back 2,000 years ago, that's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament yet, obviously, because they're writing it. They're living it right now, right? And so all they had was the Old Testament. But he knew it. Not only did he know the Scriptures, but he understood them. And he knew how to walk people through it and point them to Jesus. He knew that everything in the Old Testament was just pointing people to this coming Messiah, this, this Savior that was on his way. Now, if you, if you don't know this story, let me just tell you this real quick. We're, uh, for time, I was sitting in the back kind of debating what to do here because I know we got a, like a 30-minute late start. I know some of you have plans and things like that. But here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of abbreviate some things today and move through this. So I just want to encourage you to go back and read his entire message. It is the longest message recorded in all of Acts, even longer than Peter's on Pentecost. This is the longest message. He just, he just goes off and preaches, man. And, and it is amazing because what he's doing is he's giving a 30,000-foot view of the entire Bible. Now, why does he do that? Because the charges that they've lodged against him, they, they've accused him of blasphemy on four accounts. So this is what he's having to answer for. They said that he's blasphemed against God, against Moses, against Moses, the law of Moses, and against the temple. And so what you're going to see, I'll just give you a quick um, overview. Verses 2 through 6, he addresses the blasphemy against God. He talks about God. Verses 17 through 43, he talks about Moses and the law. He addresses that. And then verses 44 through 50, he is addressing the temple in that moment. It's incredible how he does it. He starts off with Abraham, verses 2 and 3. He starts off this way. Remember, blasphemy against God, right? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to the respect there. Even though he's wrongly accused, they they falsely accused him and brought witnesses against him. Even though they brought him and arrested him, put him in front of, of this council, putting him on trial, there's still a great respect there. He's not lowering himself. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God... This is how he starts. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran, 
God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land I will show you. And then he goes on to talk about the story of Abraham, how God leads him out. He's married to a woman by the name of Sarai. They can't have kids and, and God gives them children. And pretty soon God tells him, look, I'm gonna, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. You won't be able to count them. They'll be countless. Uh, he, he tells him to leave your land. He also tells him, look, uh, I'm going I'm to use you to display my glory and my favor to to the world, my grace to the world. I want, I want the world to see me through you, and you're going to multiply, but here's what's going to happen. Uh, your people are also going to be taken captive. Somebody's going to take you captive for 400 years. Um, God was telling him way back then what was going to happen in Egypt. Um, he says, but the people that come against you, they're going to come against me. And don't worry about it, because I'm going to take up for you. Uh, he, he goes on, he says, look, uh, Abraham, you're going to, you know, you're going to have children, and one of the children is Isaac, and Stephen actually begins to talk about Isaac, and then he talks about how Isaac, one of his kids was Jacob. He had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons end up being the, the heads of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and he also talks about how Jacob came in, and, and uh, they turned on him. They turned on his, one of his sons by the name let me see here. Let's just go to verse 8. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to slide through this as fast as I can here. Look at verse 8. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And all the guys in the room are like, you could have skipped all these verses. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob and when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And so he's given an overview of the Old Testament and he says, look, here's what happened. Um, Jacob was betrayed by the 12 and sold into slavery. And, and what's interesting about this is he's going to get into Moses here in just a minute, but what he's doing is he's laying out a case. Now, I want you to think just for a minute, if you're one of the Pharisees, you've been studying the Word of God, you're supposed to be an expert in, in the law, and you're listening to the testimony of Stephen, and he starts off by calling, hey, um, all respect, our glorious Father, this is what he's done, and he starts walking him through the Scriptures. As a Pharisee, as a Sadducee, you're listening, you're looking for fault, you're trying to find something wrong with him, but yet each step of the way, he's just going through Scriptures, like, like methodically going through Scripture, and all of a sudden, you find yourself going, he's right, he's right, he's right, and he's just kind of sucking him into this whole thing. And what he's doing, what you'll notice through this is that he's actually laying out a pattern. He begins to explain that every time God has called a man and brought him out or, or sent a prophet, every time God has done this, the patriarchs and then the Israel of nation turned against him. They rejected him. Every time God would raise somebody up to say, this is my will, this is my desire, the whole nation would reject him every step of the way. And he's laying out this pattern he gets to Moses in verse 20. He says, that at that time, Moses was born a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home, these three. And he just goes on and on. He talks about being freed from Egypt, the golden calf. He talks about the 40 years in the desert, how God protected them, brought them out. But yet even then, Moses had been rejected. He's laying out this pattern. And then he finally gets to the temple in verse 44. 
He says, our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors into battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple, but the God of Jacob, I'm sorry, but the God of Jacob. Man, I am off today. Sorry, I'm trying to skip. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. Now, the reason I bring this up, and I found this fascinating as I was looking at this, is he's found, um, he's being charged with the blasphemy against the temple. In the Jewish culture, the temple is critical. It was the focal point of everything. It was where they they came for Passover, where they made their sacrifices, where they asked for forgiveness, the, the temple, in the eyes of the Jews, literally began to replace God. They began to worship the temple as much as they worship God. And, and what's interesting is what he's doing here is he's starting to explain to them in a very polite way that God never commanded them to build the temple in the first place. God asked them to build one structure. It was the tabernacle. It was this very humble cloth uh, structure, and God was perfectly happy in that. It it wasn't God's idea to build a temple. It was actually um, David's, and God told him no. And so Solomon, David's son, would end up building it. God never ordered them to build the temple. They, They idolized the temple. They worshiped the temple as much as they worshiped God. And he's pointing this out. In verse 48, he says, However, the Most High does not live in temples made by human hands, as the prophet says. And then he starts quoting from Isaiah. He says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Did my hands make both heaven and earth? He's going, You act like this place? Is the bond, this is not, this is nothing. Like God created the heavens and the earth. You're going to create something that you think is so glorious and great, and it's nothing compared to what God has done. He, he lays out this defense by recalling who God is, by recalling the, the stories of Scripture and how God has been faithful all, over all these years to his, his people, right in front of, of a council that could decide to take his life if they wanted. He knows he's falsely accused. So would you say that he's facing a trial? Would you say that he's uh, facing adversity? I think so. So I would give you this as a first takeaway. When we, when we face trials, and I would say it this way, whether it's life or death, like it could be serious, it could be small trials or it could be something really, really big, it's always good for us to be reminded of who God is. It's always good for us to go back into the scriptures and be reminded of who God is and, and what he has done for us, how he's blessed us, the, the truths in scripture and God's character and his promises and how God has actually worked in our lives up until this point. It's important for us to remember those things when we're facing trials because those are the things that will carry us through. When we forget who God is, then even the small problems in our lives look really big. If you're, if you're struggling right now, if you're going through something difficult, 
we need to be reminded of who God is. And if you don't know where to go in Scripture and look, come see one of the pastors here. We would love to point some areas of Scripture where you can go in and you can begin to dig and be reminded of who this God is that's taking care of you, that he knows everything that's going on in your life, that he actually knows what tomorrow holds even though you don't. Now, once we get to verse 51, that's where the historical lesson ends, and he gets very applicable. Uh, the, the historical part stops, the application starts, and this is how he does it. He's, he's drawn them in, they've listened to the whole history, they've agreed with him, they know exactly what he's talking about, but then they get to 51, and he says this, you what? Stubborn people. You stubborn people. People. Now, if you're reading it in another translation, it might even say stiff-necked. Stiff-necked people. And actually, this word in the original text is the same word that Moses uses when he's talking about God's people. When he rips into the Israelites, he's, he's calling them stiff-necked. The same word is being used there. And I, I can just say this. If, if you start off your message with uh, you bunch of stubborn people, you're probably not going to win a whole lot of people over. All right? But yet, even though his life is on the line, he's not worried about that because he's only there to please one person. He's stating truth here, you stubborn people. And he actually sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 when, Matthew, uh, when Jesus was addressing the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He calls them all kinds of names. If you want a fun read, go Matthew 23, man, and read through that and see what Jesus had to say about those who thought they were better than what they were. Those who were following the law, but they were, their hearts were far from him. He says, you stubborn people, and he goes on, he says, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Some of the other translations, and this one hurts a little bit, it says, you uncircumcised of heart and ears which is amazing when you think about it because what did they place their salvation and what did they think that was saving them, right? It was the covenant between them and God. And it was a, the, the circumcision was a, was a symbol of that. And when he, when he says you're uncircumcised of heart and ear, he's not like you have no part of God. You're, you're distant from God. You're all about the outward appearance, but you're not right in the heart. You're not right in the mind. You're not right with God. And see, sometimes we need to be very careful about this because we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, think about when we look in the mirror. We often focus on surface things. We, we talk about the imperfections and the sunspots and the blemishes and the wrinkles and all the things that we wish we could change, but we're only looking on the outside. And I know, man, there's some people, they spend hundreds and thousands of dollars to improve the reflection in the mirror. Creams, uh, beauty treatments, uh, we'll just stop there. But I wonder what would happen if we actually looked deeper. See, the, the outside appearance doesn't matter if the inside's not right. We, we focus so much of our time and our attention on the outside that sometimes we fail to look at what matters the most, which is the heart. What kind of person we really are. Every one of us, we know beautiful people that are ugly, right? See, Christ calls us to a higher calling. We need to make sure that we're right inside before we worry about anything on the outside. Proverbs 27, 9 says, one's life reflects the heart. It's about our heart. He goes on, he says, you stubborn people, you're heathen at heart, deaf to the truth. 
You must forever, uh, must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. See, he's been, he's been showing this pattern. You, God keeps sending these people. He sent all of these people and, and the patriarchs and, and the Israelite nation. They've, they've always rejected God's people, his prophets. They've always rejected him. And he now says, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous ones, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. How do you like that? I don't think he's going to win anybody over with that. Um, you killed Jesus. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hand of angels, is what he tells them. And at that point, all the Pharisees got up, shook his hand, said, great message, right? No? It says, look at verse 54. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations, and they shook their fists at him in rage. Some translations say they gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Look at the contrast there. Do you see this? You've got men who are, uh, they're filled with guilt. They're filled with hatred. And yet, you look at Stephen, and he's filled with conviction and truth because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes all the difference in the world. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the place of honor at God's right hand. Can I just say it this way? When you live for the glory of God, you will see and experience the glory of God. This is how it works. Verse 56, and he told them, look, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at, in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now, something struck me this time as I was reading through this. I'd never really caught this before, but just about every other place you read in Scripture, uh, Jesus is always, what, sitting at the right hand of God. But yet here, twice, Stephen says he's standing. Is there a contradiction in Scripture here? Is there something wrong? Is, is Stephen misreading what he's seeing? Is, is that what's going on here? I don't think so. What does it mean that Stephen says he's standing when most of the scripture says that, that Jesus is seated at God's right hand? See, I think there's, there's some symboli- uh, symbolism going on here. I think, if you'll allow me this, I believe Jesus is standing because he's welcoming Stephen, the first martyr to the faith, into heaven. And Jesus stands up and welcomes him in. You might think that this is an isolated case, that it doesn't happen anymore. Because it's easy to think that living here in America. Because we talk about how bad this is and how horrible it can be. But honestly, we've got it made here, folks. We really do. Do you realize that since then, since this story, 70 million Christians have been martyred? Do you realize that uh, more than half of those have died in the 20th century under fascist and communist regimes? Since 2001 to 2010, about a million Christians were martyred. 2011 to today, we're just over 900,000 right now. Um, We've got brothers and sisters in Christ that are being slaughtered in other parts of the world. And yet we, we go about our lives as though nothing's 
wrong. Like we have it so bad. This is that idea of are we willing to die for our faith? I don't know if we can even answer that because we've never faced that type of, uh, that type of uh, persecution. It says in verse 57, then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed him. Uh, I know a lot of two-year-olds that do that, right? They're acting like kids here, aren't they? The, putting their hands over their ears and they begin shouting, ah, and they're just rushing him. Like, I don't want to hear any more of it. You guys have seen the pattern all through our history. Now you have killed Jesus. You're just as bad as they are. Ah, let's kill him, right? They rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. What's fascinating about this entire chapter is we're introduced to two young men. Completely different opposite spectrums. We have Stephen who is a man of faith, filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not afraid to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it costs him his own life. And now we have Saul. We're being introduced to another young man who is the opposite, who is standing and and watching all of this take place and agreeing with it. He's, look, just leave your coats here. Go stone the dude. I'll take care. Don't worry about it. Don't need a ticket. Just go, right? Like, he's enjoying this moment. It almost reminds you of the two thieves on the cross on both sides of Jesus, doesn't it? We get this this picture of who these two men are. It says in verse 59, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my soul. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. I get the mental picture of Jesus being on the cross, don't you? Father, forgive them, for they don't, they don't know what they're doing. Where do you think Stephen learned that? From Jesus. Talk about being Christ-like, even at the point of death. I want that. As a believer, we read this and we go, especially as a young believer, many times I remember hearing this when I was a kid and growing up in the church thinking, man, I want to be like that. We have this, have this knack of almost uh, romanticizing being a martyr. And I don't want us to do that this morning. I just want us to be real and honest about this. How can he do that? He's falsely accused. They're not listening to what he has to say. They, they cover their ears and they charge him and they stone him. How would you respond? Would that be your response? How does one respond like that? How do you get to that place where you're so, so just in the Holy Spirit and convinced uh, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he's got it, that no matter what happens here, that God's, he's got it. How do you get to that place? I, I love this because I want to be like this, just to have that type of faith. To be that in tune with Jesus to where you're not even worried about it. Like, even if they take your life, it's not a big deal. See, as a believer, we don't need to fear death. Listen to this, because I know you know this, but do we really know this? As a believer, you don't need to fear death. 
See, every one of us in this room have probably said that multiple times before, right? Like we understand that. We see that in Scripture. I don't have to worry about death. Jesus overcame death. And we're like, amen, brother. And we high-five each other and we go on with life. But boy, we, we get a paper cut and all of a sudden we're, we're losing our mind, right? See, do we really understand what this line means? As a believer, you don't need to fear death. This is a story about the death of a godly man. And, and for many people, especially those outside of the faith, they go, that's not a good story. Like, how, how is that even a good story? How can you even talk about it like that's a good thing? The reason we can do that is in Psalm 116, it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Because Jesus counts it as faithful, as precious, that as a believer, we don't have to fear death. As a believer, we don't have to fear because of the, the cross of Christ. It's taken care of our eternal salvation. We know that no matter what happens here, that we are secure going into eternity, that we will receive our gift in glory, that we will receive eternal life with Jesus Christ himself. Our eternity is set. Now we say that, but do we know it? I don't know how many of you know this, but um, I did a funeral yesterday. It was for um, my niece's fiance who died in a tragic crash, uh, driving a snowplow in the, in the slid off the road last uh, February. This is how long it's been since we've been able to have a funeral for him. Slid off, hit the ditch, and the entire sand thing in the back of the truck broke loose and crushed the cab and killed him. Um, tragic accident. And they would have been married a couple of months ago. But he was a believer. And his dad, who lost a 27-year-old son, gets up and says in all confidence, I know where he's at, and I know I will see him again. How do you have that type of confidence? Last night, um, I don't know how many of you have heard this, but last night we got word that uh, Bud Smith passed away. Um, Bud was an elder here at Mountain View for 11 years. Um, his fingerprint is on a lot of stuff here that you probably are not even aware of. And um, we lost one of, one of our own last night. And I went and visited him in the hospital and uh, asked him how he was doing. And he said, look, and, and Bud's, Bud's about as solid as you can get. Um, been walking with Christ for a long time. And he was very honest. And he said this, I'm okay in my faith. I know where I'm going, but this is what he said. But every step that you get closer to death, it becomes harder. And in a moment of just, just raw honesty, he said, I know I'm getting close to going, but I don't want to go. And I said, Bud, why? Like, what, what is it that's holding you here? And it was interesting. He said, no, no, don't get me wrong. I, my faith, I'm strong in my faith. I know where I'm going and I want to see Jesus someday, but, and this was so cool, he said, I love my family, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, I don't want to leave them, but outside of that, I'm okay to go, and you know what I love about that is because that's, that's Jesus, for God so loved us, 
that he sent his son to die for us. It was about relationship. And the only thing that was holding Bud here was relationship. It was it. He didn't say because, you know, I, I've got a big trip planned in, in October that I really, he didn't say anything like that. He didn't say because I got to make another payment on my house. Because I, I never got that, that title at work, right? I didn't get that corner office or I really wanted to buy that new Cadillac. This guy. He didn't say anything like that. He said it was because of the relationships that God's blessed me with in my life. That's what's making it hard. But outside of that, I'm ready to go. I believe that's where Stephen was at. And, and, and I'm not painting a simplistic or naive picture of death here. I, I don't want to mislead and, and give you a romantic image of death. I, I just want you to come to this place where you're like not afraid of death. Like you know without a doubt that you are secure in your, your relationship with Jesus Christ before you leave here. Because it says in Scripture, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. I never thought I'd be standing up here and, and telling you that Bud had passed. I had never thought of that. My, my niece's fiance, when he went to work that morning, he thought he was coming back. I want us to get to a place that we believe so strongly in our hearts and our minds that we're right with God that we don't fear death, that we can embrace the words that Paul spoke in First. Uh, Corinthians chapter 15, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Gave us victory over death. Coming back to the story, you might be kind of confused going, well, but I, I still don't understand it. Like Stephen, he is a man of faith and he's filled with the Spirit. Why would God allow him to be falsely accused and killed like that? That doesn't make any sense. Like nothing good could ever come out of a situation like that. And I agree with you. In our earthly minds, that's, that's the way we think. Because we have different plans. But it says that God's ways are higher than our ways. That he, he has a bigger plan. Like he takes the junk in our life and he turns it into something great. He takes the mess that we give him and he turns it into something beautiful. This is what God does in each and every one of our lives, if we'll allow him. If I'm trying to make sense of Stephen's death, which is hard, I would say this. Uh, Luke mentions that Saul was standing there. It's, it's just kind of thrown in there at the last bit of this entire chapter, long chapter, longest chapter in Acts, and then it says, and by the way, there was a young guy by the name of Saul standing there watching the coats. If I'm trying to find some purpose or, or what, what is God doing in this moment, I have to look at Saul. He's this young very, very legalistic. He's an official with the Sanhedrin. He, he's a man of the law. He's a, a strong Jewish man. He, he's heard Stephen's sermon. Like he's been fighting against this movement going on. He's tired of these Christians. But yet he can't seem to make sense of it. He can't seem to overcome it. And in this moment, he hears the entire story. And then he watches Stephen die. And I believe you can make a strong argument that he saw the glory of God in Stephen's face while he was dying. And it's going to change him forever. 
I remember hearing stories years ago of a, a missionary and his wife and two, two girls, two young girls. And uh, long story short, the militia there in the town drug him out uh, to a dock and threw him off in the river and um, to drown him. And, and the guy that was telling the story was talking about the struggle that the missionary had of, do I, do I help my wife? Do I help my two girls? What am I supposed to do? And uh, they just stood there. And of course, you know, if they tried to come to shore, they were just going to shoot him anyway. And they just stood and watched these four drown. And the father's desperation of trying to hold his wife and then the two girls up. And, and, um, and this is what he said at the end of this story. He said, you know, I, I had trouble making sense of that. Like, why would God allow that to happen? But if at the end of the day, because the entire village stood there and watched this whole thing take place. If at the end of the day, one of the families that was standing there went back to their hut they begin to discuss and talk about why would they do that? Why would they travel that far just to be killed, just to tell some people about Jesus? Maybe there's some truth in this Jesus thing. If it changed their life, see, in our eyes, we have trouble uh, figuring out God's economy, don't we? But in God's eyes, if it, if it reached one more person that would spend eternity with him, then it's worth it. That's hard for us to reason. It really is. But, but we have trouble making sense of, of God's plans half the time, don't we? See, I believe you're going to see this play out next week. Because next week, we're going to talk about this Saul. You're going to see that even though they stoned Stephen, Saul is going to meet with God on the road to Damascus. He's going to come face to face with God. And it's not only going to change Saul's life, and it's not only going to change his name, but it's going to change this Jesus movement that's going on. He is going to go on to plant numerous churches. Saul will become the Apostle Paul, and, and he will write like two-thirds of the New Testament. He will train up an unknown number of church leaders. He, he will go on several missionary trips. The, the good that will come out of this far outweighs what happens in, in chapter 7. This is where we struggle but yet trusting that God has a plan in it and that he'll use it is where we have to find ourselves sometimes. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that you're back here next week, that you've read through chapters 8 and 9, and we're going to take a look at what happens to Saul when he comes face to face with Jesus. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now um, after opening your word here and looking at a story that sometimes we, we don't like to read. It's great in the beginning. We love it when people stand up for Jesus, but Lord, when they're falsely accused and, and martyred, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us sometimes. Lord, but in this moment, we have to stop. We have to acknowledge that you are Lord over everything. 
that even in these horrible, tragic situations, and not just the one that we read here in chapter 7, but even the ones in our own lives, that if we will entrust that to you, that you can do something beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. And Lord, I just pray for each person in this room right now that if they don't have a personal relationship with you, that they would do that today before they leave. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for loving us enough to come and giving your life so that we might know you on an intimate level, that we might be saved, and Lord, that we don't have to fear death. Lord, I pray for each person in this room, uh, me included, that we would learn to look for these opportunities to share you with the world around us, just like Stephen did, even in the face uh, of a trial that might cost him his life. Lord, help us as we talk to our families this week, as we talk to um, our coworkers, our classmates, would you please give us the strength, the strength that Stephen had to speak up and declare that you are Lord. God, we give all these things to you. We ask that all glory and honor goes to your name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us here at Mountain View Fellowship. We'd love the chance to meet you in person. We gather each Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 1955 Headlight Road in Strasburg, Colorado. If you aren't able to join us in person, we'll meet you right back here next week. God bless. Thank you.